0: The last time we left the Apostle Paul, he was incarcerated in Rome. From there, he wrote a letter to his friends in Philippi to thank them for a gift they had sent him by the hands of a man named Epaphroditus. In the early part of the letter, he explains to his friends the results of his incarceration. They knew the fact of his incarceration, But they wanted to know the effect it was having on the spread of the Word of God and in Paul's life personally. So he writes to tell his friends that in spite of his incarceration, he is rejoicing because the results have been different than you would think. With that as background, let's turn again to Philippians chapter 1. And please follow along as I read verses 12 through 21, most of which we have already covered, but to have the full context in our minds, I'll begin reading back at verse 12. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As you probably noticed when I read through that section of Scripture, this portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians is very personal. In verse 13, he tells about the effect of his imprisonment on those outside the church, as he mentions that his imprisonment had resulted in the spread of the word of God through the elite circles of the Roman Empire. Then, in verses 14 through 18, he tells about the effect of his imprisonment on those inside the church, as he mentions that timid believers had become confident to speak out for Christ as a result of what God was doing through Paul's circumstances. And even though some of those who stepped forward in Paul's absence to preach the gospel were doing so with wrong motives and attitudes, he could still rejoice because their content was accurate and Christ was being preached. Now as we move this morning into verses 19 and following, Paul is going to tell about the effect of his imprisonment on himself. He is told about the effect of his imprisonment on those Inside the church, those outside the church, now he tells about the effect of his imprisonment on himself. How was he feeling through all of this? What was his attitude toward his situation? What was going on in his mind and in his heart? Remember, Paul had lost his freedom. He had lost his privacy. It had been that way for approximately five years at this point. He is chained to a Roman soldier around the clock. The evidence seems to point to the fact that he has already had one initial trial before the Roman officials, and the final trial or sentence was not too far away. What were Paul's thoughts about his circumstances? Try, if you can this morning, to put yourself in Paul's shoes, or maybe I should say in Paul's sandals. Have you ever been in a position where you had to wait to hear news about something very crucial in life? I'm talking about something that is life-altering, life-changing. You're waiting to hear news. If you've ever been in that situation, then you know the kind of mental struggle that goes on. You know how anxiety can overcome you if you allow it. That's the situation Paul was in. He's awaiting news. Would he be released? Would he be kept as a prisoner indefinitely? Would he be executed? Let's see what his attitude was toward all of this. In verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation or my deliverance through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, what did Paul mean by this statement? First of all, it's important to note that the word salvation, if that's the word that's in your translation, that word doesn't always mean salvation from sin. That's how we usually use the term when we use the term salvation today, but the word is much broader than that. It means deliverance, as, is it, as it is translated in many of our English versions. It can refer to spiritual deliverance or it can refer to physical deliverance. Since Paul had been saved spiritually for many years by the time he wrote this letter, it's obvious that he has in mind physical deliverance when he writes these words. So, what Paul is saying here is this he believes that his current distress is only temporary. He is confident that he will be delivered one way or the other. Sooner or later, he will be delivered by being released from prison, or he will be released from this life into heaven if he's executed. That's what Paul is referring to in this verse. He really doesn't know how his case will turn out before the Roman emperor, but he knows that there's a sense in which he cannot lose. If he remains a prisoner then God will continue to use him to spread the word in the unique ways he's already mentioned here in this first chapter. If he is released, he will spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel and building the church. If he is martyred, he will be released from his sinful body and stand face to face with his Savior. He cannot lose. And that's what he's saying here. Part of verse 19 is a direct quote from Job 13. Thirteen sixteen in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So Paul is drawing a parallel. By this quote, he's drawing a parallel between his situation and Job's situation. If you're familiar with the story from Hebrew Scripture, then you know that Job's suffering was not due to any defect in his character. The opening statements of the book of Job make that abundantly clear. God allowed Job to suffer primarily for another purpose, and that was as as a demonstration to Satan of his character and his faithfulness. So Paul here is saying this. In a similar way, God is allowing him to suffer not primarily as a refinement in character, but for another purpose. Now, that's not to say that either Job or Paul were perfect and needed no refinement or refining in life, but the primary purpose of their suffering was something other than that. So the point that Paul is making, sort of in a subtle way here, is that he had a clear conscience. He knew that this was not chastening from the Lord. He knew the Lord was using this adversity, this unfair treatment, This difficulty for his own glory. So with this statement here in verse 19, he links himself with Job and he focused on his future deliverance, whatever form it might take. By the way, that is a great principle for living life. It's extremely important that we learn to get through the hard times by looking to God's future deliverance, whatever form it might take. I believe Hebrews 12 teaches that even Jesus did this in his humanity. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, over to the right in your New Testament. Somewhat near the end of the New Testament, before the book of James, Hebrews chapter 12. Notice verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... What did Jesus look to in order to endure the the agony of the cross? Verse 2 says, it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the agony of the cross by looking beyond it to the joy that would result from the present hardship. And he looked to the time when, as the end of the verse says, he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a key principle for living the Christian life. As I said a couple weeks ago, Christianity by nature is future-oriented. So the Bible often uses that fact as an encouragement and a motivation to keep us forging ahead. Let me show you two or three of these passages. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After the four Gospels, we have Acts and Romans, then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, right at the end of this chapter, the very last verse says, therefore, and and the therefore is in light of what Paul has taught here in chapter 15. This is the resurrection chapter. It is certain because of Christ's resurrection we will be resurrected. And so Paul, in summing up what he has been saying, uh, states in verse 58, therefore my beloved brethren, Because there is future, there is a future resurrection. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that your labor is not in vain in the Lord? If you do, then you'll serve the Lord with your life. In fact, you'll as this verse says, you'll abound in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God rewards faithfulness. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Another verse along these lines, Galatians chapter 6. Turn past 2 Corinthians to Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good. Maybe a better way to render this would say, and let us not grow weary of doing good. It's not it's not prohibiting us getting tired. That's just understandable. We're, we're dust. We're human. So it is saying, don't get tired of doing what is right in life. Don't get tired of doing good. Let us not Grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Do you believe that? If you do, then you'll do what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says, Therefore, in light of this truth, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Another verse that tells us, God rewards faithfulness. It will be worth it in the end. Keep keep your eyes on the future and keep forging ahead. One other passage, and it's my favorite along these lines. Back to the book of Hebrews where we were just a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. I love the way the writer of Hebrews in his Jewishness Gives us a negative to express a positive. Notice Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 actually gives a, a double negative to express a positive. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The writer of Hebrews says, God is not unjust. He's not unrighteous. He's not unfair. Get that down in your heart, beloved. God is not unfair. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown toward his name. He won't forget. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb, we might be inclined to answer that question by saying, oh, that, that could never happen. I mean, there's no way a mom, a nursing mom could just forget her child. But you know, as well as I do, that happens. We read the bizarre stories every now and then about that type of thing, where a, a nursing mother casts her baby into a, a garbage dumpster or something like that. Can it happen? Yes. Yes. It does happen. But Isaiah 49, 15, God continues, Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. God doesn't forget. He rewards faithfulness. Paul knew that. So he looked to the future with confidence, knowing that eventually he would be delivered one way or the other, and that God would reward him for his faithfulness. Now back to our text there in Philippians chapter 1. So Paul is he's upbeat. He is rejoicing as he writes these words in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I'm confident this is going to turn out for my deliverance one way or the other. He says, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. How do those two work together? Only God knows. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. And yet, James 5.16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You tell me how to fit those together. It's impossible for our finite minds. Paul knew that God had a plan and God would accomplish that plan through the work of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, he knew that God works through prayer. So Paul valued the prayers of God's people on his behalf. I can surely identify with Paul on that note. I can't think of many things I appreciate more than when God's people say they are praying for me. And thankfully, people tell me that on a regular basis. That means so much to me as it did to Paul. But Paul not only mentioned prayer here in this verse, he also mentioned the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that God would accomplish his work in Paul's life through the strengthener, the Holy Spirit. So he says basically here in verse 19, since I can't lose, since there's a sense in which I can't lose, I just want to be faithful so I won't be ashamed in the end. He says in verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The phrase earnest expectation here in verse 20 is a fascinating word in the Greek language. It's actually just one word, one word with a fairly lengthy meaning It literally means to look intently into the distance with outstretched head. You have probably at one time or another been walking, hiking, and you've come across an animal of some kind, a deer or some other animal, and you see the alertness of the animal and it stretches its head and it's looking intently to determine, are you dangerous? What are you? What's going on here? That's the picture of this word. It pictures the idea of fixing your eyes intently on something with single-mindedness. That's what Paul says he was doing in his situation. His one goal, his one goal was for Christ to be magnified in his body, that is, in his situation, everything else was secondary to him. Paul's one aim was for Christ to be magnified. He didn't want to bring reproach to the name of Christ while incarcerated or during his trial or in his life and ministry or in his death if he was going to be executed. He wanted to be faithful so that whatever happened, he wouldn't be ashamed. That's an intriguing concept in the Bible. Inherent within this thought is the concept of divine enablement so as to not be disappointed. For example, in Isaiah 49:23, God says, "For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me." Romans 9:33 refers to the Lord Jesus and says, "Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame." Paul knew that the spirit of Jesus Christ, the divine strengthener, would enable him to be faithful to the end so that he wouldn't have to be ashamed. Did you know that some Christians will be ashamed when they stand before Christ? sad to have to state that, but that is the clear implication of Scripture. 1 John 2, 28 says, And now, little children, abide in Him, that is, stay close to Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. The clear implication of that statement is that believers who are not abiding in Christ when he appears, who have wandered from him, who have, who have drifted, who have backslidden, will be ashamed. Paul didn't want to be in that category. He wanted Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. Whether he continued to live as a prisoner, whether he was released in life, or were they killed, whether they killed him. The word magnified here in verse 20 is a form of the Greek word megaluno. I mention that because the word mega is a fairly popular word today. And it's easy for us to identify with the word Paul chooses here to convey his thoughts. Megaluno, the word means to make large, to make big. Warren Wiersbe writes this. Does Christ need to be magnified? After all, how can a mere human being ever magnify the Son of God? Well, the stars are much bigger than the telescope, and yet the telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. The believer's body is to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. This is really insightful. Listen to what he says here. To the average person... Christ is a misty figure in history who lived centuries ago. But as the unsaved watch the believer go through a crisis, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. To the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. Other people and other things are far more important. But as the unbeliever watches the Christian go through a crisis experience, he ought to be able to see how big. Jesus Christ really is. The believer's body is a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a distant Christ come very close. End quote. That says it so well. This was Paul's single passion in life. Over in chapter 3 he said so. Turn over just a couple pages to the right to chapter 3. Notice Paul's Pursuit here. Verse 12, he says, "...not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had a single-minded passion in life, and that was to honor Jesus Christ in everything he did. Whether he was making tents to support himself and his other ministry partners, or whether he was preaching the gospel, or whether he was sitting chained to a Roman soldier, his one passion in life was to honor Christ. Beloved, that is a concept we really need to grab hold of in life. It is so easy for us. To compartmentalize our lives into secular and sacred. It's so easy to forget that we represent Christ in everything we say, everything we do 24 hours a day. That includes the way you treat or talk to your spouse or your children or your boss or your employees or your friends or your associates or your teammates. That includes the way you act and react at school, at work, at home, recreating, driving. There's no such thing as sacred and secular for the Christian. Don't segment your life like that. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How can we do everything for the glory of God? First of all, by realizing that we represent Jesus Christ in every sphere of life in which we are involved. So much of this comes down to attitude, perspective. A Christian athlete, for example, who plays sports for the glory of God is concerned about his attitude and reactions in the heat of fierce competition. A Christian mother who seeks to parent for the glory of God is concerned about her attitude and reactions to everyday life. The illustrations are almost endless of how this principle applies to everyday life. But it all starts with the right mindset, the right focus. It all starts with the realization that there's no such thing as sacred and secular, and therefore we represent Christ every hour of every day in every relationship and every circumstance. Look at the very next letter, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. It says, and whatever you do, don't miss that. Whatever you do in word or deed, that is every every facet of life, every aspect of life, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That means you do everything with the realization you're representing Him. And people are watching you. There's no division between secular and sacred. Whatever you do. And then down in verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That's the same wording again. Whatever you do. And by the way, I remind you that these words right here that we just read were written to slaves. First century Christian slaves. Now, beloved, if a first century Christian slave can do whatever he does to the glory of God, then surely you and I can do whatever we do to the glory of God. Our mindset ought to be to seek to please Christ in everything. In Second Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing him that's what life is really all all about or should be about the right aim in life is to be well pleasing to christ regardless of anything else whatever we do at job at our jobs at work at play whatever we do to represent christ now back to our text there in philippians chapter 1 this is a good time to pause for just a moment and draw a distinction between wanting to be well-pleasing to the Lord, which is what I was just talking about, versus trying to gain favor or merit with the Lord. The distinction between these two is huge. If you are a Christian, now beloved, please hear this. If you are a Christian, there there is nothing you can do, absolutely nothing you can do to gain favor with God or merit with God, and there is nothing you can do to make Him love you more or less. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, then according to Ephesians 1, you have the favor of God, and you have all the merit you could possibly have in Christ. So as Christians, we live our lives in the favor of God, not to earn favor with God. However, As children of God, as children loved by God, we can be well-pleasing to the Lord, or we can be displeasing to the Lord. Those of you who are parents can understand this distinction immediately. You love your children with an unconditional love. There is nothing that they can do to cause you to love them more or less, but they certainly can displease you at times, and they can please you at times. The same is true in the Christian life. Paul did not want to stand firm. Here in chapter 1, he is not saying he wants to stand firm and faithful so God would love him more. It's not the idea at all. He's not saying he wanted to stand firm and be faithful so God would accept him. Accept him into heaven or accept him into into the family of God. Not at all. Paul just wanted Christ to be magnified in his body and to be well-pleasing to him. In fact, Paul summed up his entire life in one short verse. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Maltby Babcock, who wrote the song, This is My Father's World, once said, Life is what we are alive to. That's right. Life is is what we are alive to. Let let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever noticed that when you go shopping with someone who has different interests than you have, you will each be drawn to different stores? When Bev and I go shopping, which is fairly infrequently, but when we do, she's interested when we go by the department store and I come alive when we go by the sporting goods store. The thing that excites us or turns us on is the thing we are alive to or the thing we are interested in. For the Christian, the, the things of Christ should be the most exciting things that turn us on. That's basically what Paul is talking about here. Christ was his life. He lived to serve Christ. He lived to know Christ. He lived to proclaim Christ. He lived to represent Christ. To live is Christ, he said, and that's why he could say, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Now, let me say something here that's going to sound controversial until I explain what I mean. There's a sense in which, and only a sense in which, but there's a sense in which you can't say this if you're married. Now, what do I mean by that? Simply this. If you are married... And you are giving every hour of every day to ministry to other people and serving Christ in that way, then you are sinning. Let me explain further. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We were in 1 Corinthians 15 a little while ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice what the Holy Spirit says in a couple passages here in this chapter of Scripture. Chapter 7, verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then down in verse 32, same chapter, but I want you to be without care. Or concern. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now what is this saying? Paul is teaching in this chapter that when you get married... You have a biblical mandate, and underline that word, you have a biblical mandate to please your husband or wife. Not to do so is sin. If you want to give every hour of every day to minister to other people and serve Christ, then don't get married. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 7. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands are to love their wives Sacrificially, That involves giving your time and your energy and your strength and effort to the task. If you don't do that, if you don't make that a priority, don't claim to be super spiritual. Because if you, if you don't make that a priority, then you'll be a lousy husband. And you'll be sinning against the clear teaching of Scripture. Well, that's not only true for husbands, true for wives. Look at Titus chapter 2. Turn to the right, past Philippians, where we were, and then Colossians, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, then Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two, verse three. The older women, likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Wives, moms, if you refuse to make your husband and children a priority in life, then you're giving occasion for the word of God to be blasphemed. So my point is this, as a Christian husband, father, wife, mother, your family is one of the primary ways you serve Christ. So in that sense, you can say what Paul says in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ. That is, everything I do in life, I do as unto Christ. But, here's the point. Don't be deceived by the enemy to think that it is spiritual to run all over the place serving Christ while at the same time neglecting your responsibilities to your family. I say all of that because it's easy to be deceived into thinking or confused into thinking that what Paul meant or what it meant for Paul to say to live as Christ means the exact same thing to us. And it may not mean the exact same thing. It may not look the exact same way. But yet we can say, to me to live is Christ. It's just that it will look differently for us than it looked for Paul. And that comes right back to what we were talking about earlier. There's no such thing as sacred and secular. All of life is sacred for the Christian. All of life is sacred for the child of God. Our parenting is sacred. Our marriages are sacred. Our jobs are sacred. Our friendships are sacred. Our activities are sacred. Because we are to seek to please Christ in every facet of life. So with that mindset, we can say, as Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now ask yourself honestly, honestly this morning, is that the passion of your life? Really now, is that what drives you, compels you, motivate you, to me to live is Christ. I want to represent Christ in every aspect of life. Can you say that honestly? That ought to be our passion. If it's not, then we need to confess that to the Lord and ask Him to give us the right desires and the right focus in life. And we need to do whatever is necessary to order the priorities of our lives around that which pleases him. So that we can say with Paul, honestly, not just verbally, honestly, for to me, to live is Christ. Let's bow in closing. Please bow your head with me as we close our time together this morning and let that question probe your heart, probe your mind, your life, Can you sincerely, genuinely say, for to me to live is Christ, that is at work, at play, whatever my responsibilities, in the home, out of the home, wherever, whatever, my passion is to represent Christ. My passion is to honor Him. If that isn't the case in your life, then do business with God right now, this very moment. Come to grips with that focus, that perspective. And obviously, if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no way you can say that. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, there's no way you could possibly say that. So the starting point for you is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ to receive Him personally as Lord and Savior, receive His forgiveness, receive His salvation. And you can do that this very moment, right there where you are seated. You can, in your own heart, in the quietness of your own heart, humble yourself before God and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive your sin and to be your own Lord and Savior. I urge you to do that if you've never surrendered your life to Him. Father, the words of the Apostle Paul are a challenge to our hearts. We we acknowledge that. It's If we would be honest, it's not easy for us to say, to me, to live is Christ. That is my focus, that's my pursuit, that's my singular aim in life. And yet it ought to be. It ought to be for us. Whatever you've called us to do, whatever responsibilities in life, whatever obligations, whatever... You have placed on our plate. We can. Even as a Christian slave in the first century could, we can represent Jesus Christ when we recognize that there's no such thing as secular for us. All of life is sacred. Remind us of that. Remind us of that regularly, daily, so that we do what we do wholeheartedly as unto you and not as unto people, representing Jesus Christ in everything. And we pray these things together in His wonderful and matchless name. Amen.